You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years of this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Pupko in Montreal, north of the border, in the great country of Canada. I'm Aprom Kivalevich. Um, I see the smoke is rising. Uh, and, if, and if you're the the vape, the vaping is going on. I know your thoughts, your ruminations. Um, I'd like to hear them because I woke up with a very bad feeling today when I realized, uh, checking the news, that um, the two Georgia Senate seats uh, have seemingly gone over to the uh, Democrats, and that means, as Chuck Schumer said, we take Georgia. The country is ours. The democratic agenda can now be um, rolled out, and you won't have the type of opposition. There won't be um, the Senate checking and balancing what Biden and his administration want to do, but rather the sort of, when we've been hearing, the sort of a left-wing agenda um, is going to be uh, be able to pass through. And I know that there's a lot of simcha throughout the world, uh, at least in the, you know, the American liberal world, uh, that this has occurred. And I guess, uh, Rabbi Pupko, I guess I've been listening to too much right wing or conservative radio. And I've got a, I've got a bad feeling about this. So, and I, I think maybe, maybe some of our listeners do. And I'm not saying because I want Trump to be the president, but I sort of like the idea of, the yin and the yang. Okay, the president and the House want something, but the Senate is going to make sure that whatever is carved out is somewhere in the middle. Look, I've been a dying for many years, and I talked about it, of course, uh, with my relationship with your uncle, and he taught me that each party in a Dintora believes they're completely correct, and most of them are unhappy with the PSAC. However, Afterwards, they realized that that was the only thing that could happen. So when you actually have the two adversaries, the, the Senate, so to speak, with the Republican agenda and the Democrats, what's going to happen is some sort of happy medium that this country needs. And I'm worried with, with the Democrats winning that what's going to happen is, is that the things that we heard from Bernie Sanders and other things, they're going to be pushed through. And I, I think that will be something that, that we maybe even as Orthodox Jews in the United States have to be worried about. So I know your political savvy is unparalleled. Unparalleled. Uh, it's yes. without, I mean, you can't, there's no even, I mean, you can't even begin to draw. Anyway, so here's in all seriousness. I think the American voter <clears throat> is a lot smarter than people think. I think the public is smarter than people realize. It's easy to be cynical and it's easy to mock but I believe they're smarter. So if we go back to November election, America voted for a divided government, right? You had a Democrat with the presidency, but but in contrast to all of the predictions and all of the polls, the Republicans did remarkably well down ticket. They not only held on to their seats in Congress, they increased them. They held on to state houses and the governorships. The Senate, they lost much less, even though he had, they had more seats, more uh, more swing state seats uh, vulnerable than uh, the Democrats. They held on. 
And they could have easily maintained control of the Senate were not for what happened yesterday in Georgia and also the unusual system they have in Georgia, the runoff election. America's one a divided government. I believe, and again, most people would disagree with me, that Biden secretly wanted a Republican Senate because he needs an excuse not to implement the radical agenda of the people you mentioned, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and, uh, and AOC and Ellen Omar and Rashida Tlaib and, and, and those on the extreme left. Maybe you need to, you know, I'm wondering if our right-wing friends say that when you do this, Rabbi Pupko, you have to do it benishima achas, like the ten sons of Haman. (laughs) Right. When you when you mention all of them and vivai sosa, you have to mention that whole the squad and everyone. Not not that look, like I said, I, I I just know the contempt that that many people hold for them and. Parenthetically, and well-deserved contempt. Th- there's a lot of anti-Israel and anti-Jewish things Absolutely. in there. <laughs> These are this is a dangerous force. I mean, this is whenever I argue about well, what's more dangerous, the white supremacists or the left-wing anti-Zionists? What's more dangerous? If you're talking about Jewish lives directly, of course, it's white-wing supremacists. It's it's white uh, white supremacists and, and those people. They bomb synagogues. But when you talk about the long-term delegitimization of the Jewish community and of the state of Israel, the right-wing lunatic has no standing. Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and AOC, they do have standing, and they are embraced as part of respectable American political conversation, and they are very dangerous. And I believe, therefore, I believe in Biden, I do not believe is an advocate of that. He wasn't perfect during the campaign, but he was pretty good. He didn't embrace the more radical parts of that agenda. He never embraced the Green New Deal or, or even Medicare. I mean, Medicare is a little different, but he never embraced the, the left-wing agenda. And on Israel, his record is a pretty traditional democratic uh, a position, which is often uh, embracing of Israel, skeptical of Bibi, skeptical of, of settlements, but generally supportive of military aid uh, for Israel. He has made it clear he will not condition it on uh, on other policies. Uh, the issue of the Iran deal is obviously uh, very crucial. We're now uh, observing the first yard site of Soleimani, and there have been threats from Iran. Uh, many observers of the Middle East believe that Iran is held off in retaliation for the killing, waiting for Biden. They'd rather deal with Biden than Trump. Trump, whose people have talked about re-entering the Iran deal. But again, you get a bit of a mismatch of whether or not they're going to negotiate missile technology and other things as part of that, or only after they re-enter. What does it mean for lifting of sanctions, which earlier meant a huge amount of money being sent to terror groups around the Middle East, whether it was Yemen, Syria, Iraq, uh, or other places. So it's it, these are serious issues. So uh, I, I believe Biden secretly probably wanted a divided government. And here's the thing. Even with all of Trump's sabotage of Republican chances in Georgia. Uh, how, how did he do that? How did Trump sabotage I'm basically expecting, expressing uh, complete confidence that, that, that elections are frauds. So why show up? If the elections are frauds, why bother voting? Look, I, I, I didn't 
have my ear to the ground of every Trump rally, but I know he went down to Georgia and told them to vote. He told yes, everybody. He, he absolutely did. But he also spent weeks telling people that election doesn't matter because they're all corrupt and uh, and, and being used, uh, you know, for by by Democrats so, in a various way. So he, they only heard he, they only heard half of his, his his they heard half of his message, and therefore you think. No, they, but at the rally where he told people to vote, ninety percent of the rally was about him. It wasn't about uh, Loeffler and Purdue. It, it was about it was, it was about his own grievances and his grievances, which are again in the view of every. I mean, all close to sixty cases have been filed. All of them rejected, sometimes by Trump appointees. There's been no evidence of fraud, as his own attorney general has said. Uh, of course, in every election, you're going to have mistakes being made. But you talk about Georgia, they. They did a 10% sampling of all the signatures. They found 10 that looked suspicious, but all were clarified in the end. It's they, Georgia has counted and recounted his votes, and he's still screaming fraud. Uh, it's it, it, And again, he has, in fact, told Republicans that the election system is fraudulent, and therefore he has suppressed Republican voters. And even with all of that going on, right, with all of that going on, Democrats won by a razor-thin margin. So if Democratic senators from Georgia think they're going to get reelected in six years, if they follow a radical agenda that's out of the mainstream of Georgia voters, they're insane. So intelligent Democratic politicians understand that the extreme left, Sanders, Warren, etc., represent a very, very narrow slice of the Democratic Party. And if they hope to win in the future, they're not going to represent, need to represent the broad nation of America life. Um, Hopefully they draw that lesson. But again, that's, that's only a hope. And we don't know if they're going to see things that way. And there is great reason for concern to have three branches of government all in the hands of the Democrats, in the Senate, the House, and the presidency, in the hands of the... You, you, know, you, talk, you, you, you talk about the, the, the far-left... You know, let's talk about the Aliyah Ligdula of one of our own tribe, who is going to be the uh, Senate Majority Leader, uh, the Senator from New York, Chuck Schumer. Right. right. And, the, and the serious problem with Chuck Schumer is that he is living. Listen, you see this all the time. Politicians think about a lot of things, but the most important thing on their agenda is getting reelected. And Chuck Schumer is scared to death of a senatorial challenge from AOC. And therefore, he has said and done things which are clearly designed to fend off a left-wing assault on his standing. And that is very dangerous. Now, she is, at this point, just for our Canadian listeners who might not be as savvy as you, she's in the House of Representatives. But she might jump to be – she might decide with all her great political experience to run for the U.S. Senate. Right. That's that's what you think. No, I don't think she would win in New York State. I don't think, but I don't know. Listen, she's in a she represents a congressional district that um, that celebrates her. But again, whether her policies play in the rest of New York City, let alone the rest of New York State, is an open question. So, but but, but, uh, but you haven't you haven't you haven't you haven't assaged my fears, Chuck Schumer. Like you say, is does not want to be outlefted, 
So, and Chuck Schumer was one of the most vocal, strident, right. shrill voices right. against against everything. So now he's going to be running the the, the Senate and going to be the, the no, but show. Also there's more than there's something more problem. I mean, there's a lot of problems here. There's a legislative issue, but also there's the concern. There's a concern that serious concern. And, and we don't, people don't always appreciate this. That means every Senate committee is now chaired by a Democrat. And that gives them an enormous amount of power and an enormous amount of clout. And it, it, it determines the agenda of the Senate. It determines what is investigated by the Senate. Uh, it, 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 and a lot of people didn't, play, didn't pay attention to this. But over in the House, Nancy Pelosi drafted rules for the 117th Congress, which are radically different than the rules under which they practiced before about the ability of Republicans to even offer amendments about how certain things are funded. And those they're, they're taking, they are taking uh, liberties with their newfound power that are scary. There's no question it's scary. The question is, though, in policy, the left still represents a minority, a small minority in the Congress and the Senate. But where does the Democratic Party see its own future? Do they see it as representing what I believe to be the broad mainstream? Remember, the election that got the squad elected, those four, the four women that everyone talks about, in that, in that election, oh, not just the majority, but the overwhelming majority of new Democratic Congress people were moderates, pro-Israel moderates. A couple of weeks before they had that failed trip to Israel, where she didn't play, whatever, visit her mishpach in the West Bank, you had 30 new Congress people visit Israel with APAC. So they don't get the media attention. They don't have the public profile. But when it comes to counting votes and making policy, moderates still rule the day in the Democratic Party. But they, the question is, how does the Democratic Party, again, see its future? Do they see... Uh, their future in what the way Stacey Abrams, for instance, sees it, that it's not about appealing to the moderates. It's about energizing your own base. In doing that, you can win. You don't have to worry about expanding your base. All you have to do is energize your base. You don't have to reach out to the to the moderates. And, and Stacey Abrams won yesterday. If anybody won Georgia, it wasn't just Ossoff and Warnock. It was Stacey Abrams who seems to have vindicated, been vindicated by the fact that she turned out her vote. Right. And and it's clear, I think, although I didn't listen to all the pundits, it's clear that the African-American vote in Georgia is what allowed Warnock to win. Right. If you now, were following the election results last night at around 11 o'clock, the Republicans are ahead and we're all being told the Fulton County vote hasn't been counted yet. And you knew it was over, even though they were ahead because of the large African-American population in Fulton County. Right. And that and that came out in droves. So really, you know, this identity politics, this energizing of the black community is really the story of the 2020 election in yeah, many but ways. There's another story. The other story is Trump increased his black vote. Okay, okay. a little bit. No, which means the black middle class is not radical. The black middle class is not interested in defunding the police. The black middle class is not anti-Semitic or anti-Israel. But the voices that are most amplified are the radical voices. And that is something which 
I'll never figure out why that is. It isn't war. It, look, I, I, I don't spend time listening to old speeches and, and, and doing fact checking. Uh, maybe we should if we do a politics show, which is what this is turning into. But this uh, Raphael or Raphael <laughs> Warnock, I think, isn't he on record for some pretty virulent, yes, terribly nasty things about the state of Israel? Yeah. OK, and, so uh, and yeah. I know he issued a paper before the election. Right. And he had 120 Nudnik rabbis endorse him and uh, people call themselves rabbi uh, endorse him. And uh, so what do we what do we make of the but he fact? has made certain commitments? That if he sticks to them, you know, kind of take the sting out of his anti-Israel policies of the past. But time will tell. But again, is, is he ever going to be? I mean, is he ever going to be who we would want him to be? No. Um, yeah. So, right, again, you, you're right. Whatever, you know, but but still Jews came out and voted for, for him. And Warnock is definitely a, uh, you know. He's anti-Israel. There's no question. But again, he has made certain commitments to the Jewish community in Georgia that, uh, you know, maybe he'll keep to, maybe he won't. It's certainly scary. It's certainly the, the Republicans would have been better. But again, I, 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 you know, I, what's so painful about all of this is that it could have so easily been different. In other words, it was it, the, the margin by which Biden won in three states aggregate was like 44,000 that were decisive. I mean, it, it was so... It's so clear that had Trump just done a few things differently, he would have won, and not just won, but won in the landslide that he now imagines he won by. And that had things, had he behaved differently after November election, uh, the Republicans would have won. In Georgia. In other words, had Trump said, I accept the will of the people, and I'm going... I mean, if you want to read an interesting column, read Richard Nixon, read what Richard Nixon did in 1960. Richard Nixon was the sitting vice president. He lost an election to John F. Kennedy. There was clear uh, electoral fraud in Illinois and in Texas. And he, like a gentleman, got up in the the Senate, because he was the vice president, just like Pence's job today, and got up in the Senate and with graciousness, well, you know, uh, congratulated the Democrats on their victory and Kennedy and Johnson. And And he not only did he do that, he urged certain Republicans not to object the way, you know, uh, the way that we're now familiar with. And he went ahead and he graciously for the good of the country, just like Al Gore did when he lost for the good of the country. Although right. Al Gore, Al Gore did take it to the Supreme Court. He did. Right. He did. But he accepted the decision. He accepted the decision and didn't protest the count or anything else. He accepted. Right? I, I, I think we've come the country. up. We've come a long way where we now point to Richard Nixon as a paragon of civility and good behavior, right? Uh, right. Listen, I mean, listen, you know, just because he did, you know. He I, has, look, but again, that, that's the point, though. Even Nixon. That's right. I think even Nixon, Nixon. Even, look, Nixon was a, a very cruel and disturbed man. Yes. Uh, however, he was... He was at least twenty times brighter than Trump oh. is, and yeah. he was a very oh, listen. Imagine a world. Let's let's go back to the first days of the Trump presidency, right? When every photograph shows his the crowd at his inauguration is smaller than Obama's. So 
He's then asked about it, or the press secretary at the time, Sean Spicer, I think, I don't remember anymore. Um, they've had so many. So he, so he says, no, it's bigger. And, okay, I will give Trump two alternative responses to that. One racist and one gracious. Instead of denying reality and looking like an idiot and starting the clown show, he could have said, well, you know, uh, my people work for a living. They couldn't come to the inauguration. <laughs> okay. Or he could have said, you know, don't judge me by how many people come to my inauguration in 2016. Judge me by how many people come in 2020 after I've served the American people for four years. Yeah. Look, okay. You don't have to be a genius to come up with good lines now. So he, he could have, he could have behaved and instead he gets right from the gate, gets into this bizarre clown show where, because for 50 years he's paid people to say yes to him. He thinks he can play that game with other human beings who he's not paying. Then he can say whatever he wants and people are going to nod. No, that's not how the world functions. And had he simply, for instance, he had an immigration deal that any Republican president would have signed to. A deal in immigration where you have a path for DACA and you have the funding for, for, uh, for border security. He had a deal and he rejected it. Had he not gone around, around mocking McCain, right, he would have had his support on, on, on a health care alternative. This way, he didn't have one because McCain, uh, you know, uh, chose to be the decisive vote in the Senate against it. Had he, uh, from the very, by the way, there were very persuasive cases that he could have made on the uh, on the Mueller investigation, on other things where he could have talked about instead of screaming fake news and talking about plots, he could have said. You know, the uh, the investigation into a Russian collusion uh, was uh, triggered by FISA warrants that have now been proved fraudulent. I think we need to talk about why. The Steele dossier that was used to get a FISA warrant was, in fact, funded by the Clinton campaign. We all know that these are all, this is what the investigations have shown. In other words, there were reasonable, persuasive cases to be made that had he done it better or had people do it better, Right. People would have understood what he was trying to say. But instead, he was flailing around like a child in the sandbox, screaming fraud, fraud, fraud and fake news and this and that. He had argued he had real solid arguments to be made about the covid lockdowns and that they were too extensive and, and severe. That schools, elementary schools especially, could have stayed open, that businesses could have stayed open. You could have secured the safety of the most vulnerable, secure the nursing homes. He could have he could have made a persuasive argument as others were doing in April and in May that the lockdowns were too severe. Right? There were very intelligent people, very intelligent, credible people who were talking about this, about striking the balance between making sure the hospitals aren't overwhelmed, but not destroying the economy. Right? There, there were persuasive arguments made, but he never took the time to make those arguments, and he never put effort into getting the right people behind the podium to make those arguments. Instead, he's talking about alternative treatments and, and, and you know, and, uh, and whatever else. And, and it's, it's a China, it's this and that. And by the way, there was a persuasive argument, very persuasive. And I would ask everybody listening, read the article in this week's New York magazine, a liberal magazine detailing how it is very clear that this, virus began in a laboratory in China 
that was accidentally released, and the Chinese have now blocked um, uh, the investigation. Member, two members of the World Health Organization were on a plane today to go to China, and China then changed their mind and blocked them. There were persuasive arguments to be made about the origin and what should be done. But as that article in New York Magazine makes clear is, once Trump politicized it by childlessly, you know, pointing a finger at time of the, the China flu or whatever it was he was doing, scientists who knew the truth or suspected the truth were reluctant to point a finger at China because it meant you were with Trump, right? The, the result, the unintended consequence of politicizing everything is that everything's politicized. <laughs> and, right. and when that happens is if... If, if the person you would agree with is acting in a bizarre manner, you, you lose their support. Yeah, it definitely is a tragedy. And I, and I think that um, I agree with you in many ways, even about, um, you know, the, the severity and the, the inability to, to, to hear nuance in, in, in how we're supposed to respond to COVID. Um, I think that, uh, you know, again, Trump, it's more than a misuse of the Billy pul- bully pulpit. What you're saying is, is that um, because of his prominence and because of his inability to actually even step back and maybe even go into the basement and let Pence or normal people talk really ends up Here's the case. sabotaging. Had, but, the but, of the presidency, had he put his cell phone down and not tweeted once, he would have won by a landslide. Okay, that's the truth. He was his own worst enemy. Every problem he had was his own doing. That's a ridiculous conversation with Comey, the ridiculous conversation with the Ukrainians, all this stuff. And, and Bob, Bob, let's talk about Bob Woodward. I mean, uh, he exactly. He didn't. Every problem he had was his own doing, and not on policy. It was on how he was talking and engaged. He made himself. Now, here's the point. So, okay, so Trump aficionados. What do they all say? You know, when you when you say that he could have behaved better, they said, well, look, he got elected behaving that way. Yes, you're right. He got elected behaving that way because he was running against the single most unpopular politician in America named Hillary Clinton. And he uh, represented a repudiation of the political correctness, which was where people that people felt they were being suffocated by whatever it was. But just because you get elected one way doesn't mean you govern the same way. That which is successful in getting you into the Oval Office does not mean that will be the same way that makes you successful in the Oval Office. And if that, that behavior, people loved it, right? The outrageousness, you know, uh, thumbing his finger, at, thumbing his nose at convention, uh, you know, being, you know, being the uh, the outlier, the guy that's willing to say, every, you know, like like the uncle at the end of the, your drunk uncle at the end of the bar, you know, people voted for Trump. Because even if they didn't agree with how he behaved, they knew one thing. He was going to anger the people they hated. Oh, you know, I, I, I think about this from a psychological, sociological perspective. I, don't, I really don't know if Trump is worth the efforts of Pupko and Kivalevich to try to really plumb his psyche. But I think about the fact that 20 years ago, although he was still sort of like a megalomaniac, if you watch some old episodes of of The Apprentice, he does not seem so imbalanced 
you know, uh, let me give you a motion about this. After he became president and he met foreign leaders, there were professional um, translators who needed to transcribe what he was saying. And, and they weren't able to do it because he wasn't able to string sentences together in any normal fashion that could be translated. Listen, he... wait, wait, just let me make a point. When you see him from 10, 15 years ago uh, on The Apprentice, he isn't uh, Lawrence Olivier, but he but he but he he, he speaks in a, in a in a measured tone. And maybe he had a teleprompter there. It didn't look like it. What I, I think something happened to him. And I, I, I'm going to say one other parenthetical point. Ivanka, she's one of ours. You know, she's she's a Jew and we're very happy about that. She comes off in the program as very intelligent, very put together. Whatever you want to, you know, throw negative barbs about her. I don't think Ivanka is is is, speaks like a like an idiot like her dad does. And I don't think his her dad spoke as idiotic as he used to uh, as as he does now. So I'm going to throw out this at you and maybe we'll wrap this up here. Is it possible that the man was just too old as much as he prided about himself of being a big, strong, virile guy and I'm in the best health. He really was too old to learn new stuff. He was basically, you know, you know, Obama said it right. He said the man did not roll up his sleeves and learn how to do the job. And I'm going to say not that he lacked the mental capacity or that he lacked because I think he probably did learn stuff as a businessman. I think at this point, he had reached an age where learning and, and adapting wasn't something he could do. I, he might have the most incredible stamina to binge watch and stay up all night <laughs> and be able to like you know know what's going on. But I don't think he had that capacity. What do you think? Do you think I'm right that I, it's I, age I, is the issue? I, it could be, I think. He certainly never showed an interest in learning the details of policy, right? You, you, you read everything that aides and former aides have said and written. He was never interested in, in, in the granular details of policy or even sometimes even the broad strokes of policy. Uh, whether it was hubris, in other words, he felt that because he had won an election, that meant he was the Albert Einstein of politics and didn't need to. He wasn't prepared for briefings. He was singularly disinterested in anything, it seems, that had nothing to do with it. It didn't have to do with it directly. Uh, and, and that certainly was, was a great failing. I don't know what the reason is. I don't know uh, if whether it was in, 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 he was incapable or unwilling. I, I don't know. But uh, uh, he, he could have so – he did some really important things. Listen, I, I would say, you know, uh, to me he wasn't conservative enough on many issues, whether it was – you know, entitlement reform or, uh, or or some other issues and on free trade. But um, he did some important things, on, you know, confronting the Chinese was important. But again, he kind of capitulated in the, in the deal. Uh, he wasn't consistent enough. He did some important things on regulation, very important things on regulation and on taxes. He did great things, great things, historically fantastic things for the Middle East, for the state of Israel, really wonderful things. And um, I don't know why he was so incapable of seeing outside his own circle of, of, of supporters, 
why he never cared about his place uh, in history and how he would be thought of in, in the future. I just, you know, the amateur psychologists talk about how the worst thing for him is to be a loser. So he's doing all of this just so he can pretend to himself and the people closest to him that he didn't lose, that it was a fraud, that that's what it's all about. It's not about anything other than being able to think of himself and portray himself as something other than someone who lost an election. And that's so important to him. But uh, I, I don't know what went wrong. I don't know how he, you know, where, where his head is at. What I do know for sure is, given the razor thin margin of his defeat, and given again all the circumstances that should have said he couldn't win an election, he could have won that election easily had he behaved better in the first debate instead of shouting for an hour and a half. Had he handled COVID with greater dignity and and, and, and thoughtfulness, had he dealt with the own impeachment with greater clarity and coherence, any of it, he would have certainly won and won by a landslide. The country is not AOC's country. The country is is, is center, center right. That's where the country is. That's what every, besides California, New York, that's what all the elections in November showed, whether it was the Senate elections, the House elections, the, the governorships, the state legislatures and assemblies, the country is center and center right. But when the person at the head of that ticket Acts in a way which leaves people, you know, rolling their eyes. You know, it's it's gonna uh, it, it hurts and it's yeah, it was not well, destructive. Well, so I think that you know, I think you've done a good uh, job of of uh, being mospid, uh, Trump. I think that that part of what you're saying, I think, needs to be, despite you know, maybe they have to hold their nose, the Democrats, and say that as well. In order to reach across, I, I think Biden's people made a big deal about Biden's um, speech a couple of nights after the election. I want to be the president for all the people. I, I want as if he was a great, uh, great reconciliation. No, you need to. Uh, you, he needs to say, I understand that you, many people didn't vote for me. And I understand what Trump was able to do. And there was many positive things. I think if Biden says that, that that will go a long way of assaging the, the fears of Listen, people. And, 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 they have, and they haven't done that. I that's, think every- That's the tragedy of Georgia, is that the incentives that we, in a world where you'd have to work with Mitch McConnell in a Republican-controlled Senate, he would, even if he wasn't sincere about it, would be compelled to compromise. Now, with the Senate in Democratic hands, he doesn't have to as much. And I think, but I think temperamentally, Biden hasn't, does not buy into the polarization of the, of, of the moment. I think temperamentally, Biden does believe the country is moderate. And I think he understands that the radicals represent a, a very small slice of the American uh, uh, political spectrum. But again, Georgia is a disaster. Georgia disaster. So, so because there's no question it's a disaster. You have to hope. Again, okay. I, I, uh, you have to hope that people like Joe Manchin, you know, uh, a moderate Democrat, uh, will say no to stuff because it, it, again, their margin it's fifty-fifty now. The Senate, right? Yeah. So you have Kamala Harris as a tiebreaker. It's fifty-fifty. That means anything the Democrats want to do. They got to get everybody on board. You're a Canadian now, so I will we'll be mocha that you said Kamala instead of Kamala. 
<laughs> That's the way it has to be said. And and I and again, you say that Biden is um, temperamentally temp- his his temperament is Biden. I believe is really going to fade, um, and maybe he'll have some energy. But I do believe Biden. And I talked about age. You know, we're both not that much younger than them, but. I still feel the age factor is something that's going to limit Biden. And, and I think you can't Kamala, imagine Biden running for a second term. Right? He's already said that he's only a transitional person. And I think Kamala is going to be a very powerful force. And we, we, I think, you know, her record is clearly probably, again, I don't know, I haven't done research on it, but her record, I think seems to be leaning more towards the more, left. Yeah, he's more, she's more left. But again, Traditionally, vice presidents don't have that much sway, even though she would be the heir, the presumptive heir. I think you have to look at people like the chief of staff, who is more moderate. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, listen, one thing for sure. Uh, we'll know much more six months from now than we know today. Yeah, we'll have to, so we'll have to revisit this if, if Emeritus yeah. Rex is <laughs> able to last. And, you know, thank God we don't have Nielsen ratings uh, that we need to meet uh, certain numbers, <laughs> and as long as uh, you know the the rabbi's study in Montreal is open uh, once a week for this sort of intrusion, I guess maybe we'll be able to reexamine this in a another as political Charlton program. Heston, as Charlton Heston said, "I'll have to rip this microphone from my cold dead hand." <laughs> Paraphrase, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Or, as Charlton Heston said in in one of his later film roles, it's people. Soylent Green is people. Let's hope that. My God. Let's hope that we are not actually destroying. What was the uh, last line of Planet of the Apes? What did he say? What did he say? Um, Statue of Liberty? Well, I'm not sure. If, I, I don't know if you want to spoil that. It's such a great uh, <laughs> a photographic shot of the Statue of Liberty sticking its hand out. But yes, no. Charlton Heston, our Moses. Uh, um, I'll leave you with one thing here. You know, we talk about, um, you know, they went to, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments. This is Parsha Shmos. Uh, Charlton Heston um, and Cecil B. DeMille uh, and the whole crew actually went to Israel to film yeah. Uh, many parts of uh, the Ten Commandments, and they actually went to the uh, mountain that was known as Har Sinai, and they spent the night by the abbot. Uh, there's a church up there yeah. on Har Sinai. Uh, you know, maybe that's where Yoshua was with the <laughs> waiting for Moshe But anyway, um, so they spent the night by the abbot, and the next day they were going to film in that area, Mamish. They wanted to go to film the burning bush scene. Right. So Heston said to Cecil B. DeMille, he said, you know what I think would make sense when instead of hiring some, you know, James Earl Jones like voice actor to be the voice of God, why not let it be my voice and we'll just amplify that. And which is what they did, I, I believe. And Cecil B. DeMille says, Chuck, you didn't have a big enough part yet. <laughs> You're Moses. You got to be God. What I never understood about that movie is in the Bernie Bush scene, why do they have to use animation? It was like a cartoon fire. Why didn't they just, what was wrong with a real fire? Well, they couldn't, it, it wouldn't, they couldn't control so you keep that. keep burning it. There aren't enough bushes. 
I was very, I mean, it's, it looks very amateurish, the animation. I see. I see. <laughs> well, you know, what I, all I can tell you is, is that, um, I'm happy that you're playing our Moses and, uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, yes, yes, yes. You definitely are giving us the voice of direction. I'd rather be Edgar G. Robinson. All right. Yes. <laughs> all right. Take care. We'll see you hopefully on the next program of Emeritus Rex. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 